Alright, what's up y'all? My name is Brett Longabuco and this is the Cash Course Podcast. I'm here with my man, Dr. Derek Brockamer. He's going to be the co-host as we go through this journey together. Um, and we just want to take a quick second to kind of introduce ourselves, give you a little background of our story and kind of how we got here. Um, Derek and I, you know, we've known each other for most of our lives at this point. I remember my first memory with Derek was probably in Little League um, around the middle school age. And then from there, you know, we kind of were always in similar athletic circles as we went through middle school and high school. Um, and then, you know, going into more of a professional role, um, Derek, you know, he'll tell you about this, but he's a DPT, doctor of physical therapy. I'm a strength and conditioning coach at the university level. Um, so our conversations and collaborations kind of started in a professional manner, um, just, you know, putting our minds together and regarding essentially kinesiology. Um, and, you know, as we spent more time kind of playing recreation sports in our more adult life, um, those conversations started to turn into personal growth and um, personal financial conversations, honestly. And, you know, I think we both have a passion for being better than we were the day before. And I think we both have a passion for diving headfirst into finance, learning from each other's stories, learning from other stories, um, and kind of using that perspective to help navigate our own personal finance, which, you know, we'll touch on a little bit more the goals of this podcast, but I think that's kind of where it all stemmed from. Uh, so a little bit about me, I was born and raised in Torrington, Connecticut. Um, you know, I started working at a pretty young age doing soccer camps and sweeping a parking lot. I was like a custodial worker at a, at a commercial lot. Um, and, you know, that just showed me the value of a dollar, you know, because I these soccer camps, they were sleepover soccer camps. So I would be essentially working around the clock for five straight days to cash like a $600 check or whatever the case may be. And at the time it was big money, uh, but it came at a came at expense. You know, I was essentially working around the clock, coaching sessions during the day. I'm a camp counselor, dorm room uh, personnel, if you will, at night. So, you know, I, I was no stranger to trading, trading in my time for money. Um, and that kind of pushed me to my professional path, I guess, is I'm now currently a strength and conditioning coach. I'm the head strength coach at New York University. This is my eighth year working full-time. I've been a full-time strength and conditioning coach at various universities pretty much since graduate school. Yeah, it's, it's a good university to treat me well. Um, but, you know, what? again, you'll hear a little bit of my story, but it wasn't always glamour. You know, it was I got laid off at one point in my professional life. That was my first job. I was a state school up in Vermont, um, and they kicked me to the curb. And I kind of had to pivot and adapt. And I think that's where, you know, my – my journey for personal finance kind of began, you know, cause I, I was pretty much back against the wall. I didn't really have any options. I didn't have any knowledge as to, you know, how can I fend for myself rather than rely on an employer? Um, you know, so I think again, we'll, we'll touch a little bit more on that and, and the impact that that had on me. But again, I think that's really what stemmed me from saying, okay, if I am always reliant on an employer, and reliant on trading my time for money, uh, that's not sustainable, that's not flexible, that's not um, conducive to growth and work-life balance or just life balance that I want in my life. So, uh, you know, at that moment, that was two years into my professional um, career. So I think it was 2018, um, I, I dove full-time into personal finance to try to figure out how I can be more in more control of my finance. Um, so that's a little bit of my story. Again, we'll, you, you'll hear a little bit more details as we, you know, navigate through this podcast, just based on the conversations we've had. But um, I think what's really relatable here is, you know, I, I have a passion job and sometimes passion and paycheck don't always align. Um, and I think that, you know, most of my career, I was making significantly under six figures, you know, and in that eight years of full-time work, I was able to amass close to, if not over at this point, $1.5 million of assets, most of them being in real estate. Um, and so I think what you'll hear from Derek's story too is that anybody can do this. You know, It's just a matter of if you want something, you're going to act accordingly and it's going to become who you are. And those habits are going to be day in and day out. And you may not see that gain or that growth in one day, but if you take it one day at a time and you attack each day and you win each day, you know, days turn into months, months turn into years, years turn into decades. Now, all of a sudden, you're where you want to be. Um, so I'm pumped with 
where I am. I'm pumped to be here on this Cash Course podcast, and I'm fired up to be with my man, Derek Brockmer, as a co-host. So, Derek, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got here? Yeah, brief little background on me. So, started off, uh, you know, humble beginnings, classic. Um, my parents had me very young. I think my mom was 15, dad was 17. So, I say that to say they didn't have, you know, uh, first of all, they didn't go to college. So, they had both, like, my dad worked construction, which is a decent job. But my mom was in and out of like um, special special needs education. She was a community support provider for like group homes. Um, so basically my entire childhood, I watched them uh, just work check to check. And because of that, money was always tight and we never really had extra finances. And with them having not much time to you know, grow themselves outside of providing for a family, money was never a conversation in our home. I, in my house, my mom was always, boy, you're going to college. You're not working a, uh, two full-time jobs, full two full-time jobs like me. Uh, you're going to go to college, get an education, get a, uh, you know, live a better life so you don't have to stress the way I stress. You know, that, that classic sort of what you hear. So in my mind, I'm thinking college is the ticket out. Like, okay, if I don't want to live like this, I got to go to college. So from a young age, that's all I was focused on is getting to a good university and getting some sort of good paying job never thought about what I wanted to do or what my dreams were really outside of like, I want to be an NBA basketball player, right? Classic kid shit. Um, so again, college heavily emphasized fast forward, you know, I get to college. Um, my parents again, didn't go to college. So they don't know the process of application FAFSA. You're I'm signing promissory notes. I'm like looking at my loan terms at like 18 years old. I have no idea what this stuff means. And no idea what the consequences of my decisions are six, seven, eight, ten years down the line. I'm just in the middle of it thinking this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Everybody's doing this. Meanwhile, I got kids that their parents, friends that their parents are paying for the college. They don't got to worry in the world. And I'm thinking I don't either. Well, anyways, my financial package doesn't actually cover my actual school costs. So now there's a $4,000 balance on the, you know, on my, on my balance sheet that I owe the university. So what I find myself doing is working a full-time job every summer from 18, 19, 20, 21, and even beyond full-time jobs in the summer, uh, where I'm not spending a dime of what I'm earning. So at the end of the summer, you know, my friends are going to Lake Compounds, they're going to Six Flags, you know what I'm saying? They're having all this fun. Let's go out to eat. Let's go do this. Let's do that. Go do that. I'm like, I can't do none of that. At the end of the summer, I got $4,000 in my bank account. And rather than going back to school with new jeans, new shirts for class, sneakers, you know what I mean? A haircut, like all that stuff was getting pushed to the side so I could just pay my school bill and I could be allowed in the library and allowed to go in the gym and play basketball, like that type of stuff. So then go through college, graduate, get my first uh, full-time job. Well, not my first full-time job, but my first career job, right? As a physical therapist, like you said, yes, I'm a doctor of physical therapy, technically. Um, I work for the West Haven VA at this point, but I take my first job and similar to Brett's story, significantly under six figures. And at this point, I'm, I went to school for seven years. I'm over six figures in debt. So I still have no idea what that monthly payment is going to look like. Get my first full-time job for six months. It's great. All of a sudden you get that get that email. Oh, your your loans are due, buddy. You better start paying the government back. So I get this bill and they, they you get to choose all these options. Again, no idea what the hell I'm doing, why I'm doing it, have no idea about anything. So I just choose the most expensive one. So my first two years of work, even three years, I'm like, you get like this, oh shit moment. Excuse my language, but I'm like, damn, I'm making this amount of money and I'm not seeing a dime. I'm living with grandma. Like my, my dwelling situation is a 80 square foot room in my grandmother's house and I can't get up out of here. So you start asking these questions and you start to look back like, did my mom mislead me? All this stuff that can like, you know, there was nights where I'm like pissed off about it. Like I'm a doctor. All my friends, Oh, Derek's a doctor. Derek's he making that doctor money. I'm like, brother, <laughs> doctor money. Don't get nowhere. I'm telling you, I'm not like a surgeon. I don't get doctor money. So for me, it was just like this, eye-opening experience of like frustration of like, okay, so how do I actually get ahead? And, you know, through our relationship, like you said, we kind of always kept in touch. We play a lot of recreational golf together. We sort of reconnected over the last two years, I'd say. And then uh, you you started talking to me about your story and how you kind of dealt with some things. And it turned into a daily conversation of how do we uh, utilize money 
as a tool, right, in order to set us up with the life we want to live. So in the last two years, I've made a lot of different moves and decisions that I didn't make the prior years um, that I only wish I had had these conversations with you earlier. And I think that's a good segue into why we're doing this podcast, which I think you're going to touch upon. Yeah, I think, you know, those conversations are essentially kind of where I started as well. I would say they were truthfully more conversations with myself. Um, I remember that moment I got laid off in my head. I was like, okay, this is something that I'm passionate about. And I'm 25 years old. I'm obviously going to get back up on the saddle, find another job. Somebody's going to hire me. I went to university of Miami for my master's degree. I worked with their sport programs, basketball team. My resume was packed. So I, I didn't really have a professional worry that, okay, I could get back into this field, but I did have a worry that, okay, I'm 25 now, but if I was 45 and I had two, three children and a wife, and my wife was maybe a stay at home mom taking care of two young kids or whatever, I would be skunked, you know? So that was, that was the light bulb moment to me where I really had to dive into any resource that I could find to learn personal finance and learn how to make my money, make money. Mm -hmm. Um, so again, it was truthfully a lot of self-conversation. Um, and then as I, you know, began to acquire a little bit of knowledge through books and podcasts, I just had these conversations out loud with others, you know, and that allowed me to learn from others' perspectives and experiences. Um, and it's something that I really just took a passion in was not only personal finance and growth, but learning from each other and helping each other grow. Um, that's kind of what I do in my profession, you know, more so in the physical manner. Um, but I think this really sparked an interest in me, uh, for just growth and collaboration through candid, transparent financial conversations. And I think that's really why Derek and I have such fire to bring this podcast to y'all, you know, cause I think number one, it's going to be a great opportunity for myself and Derek to have a number of brilliant guests on the show, ranging from you know, like real estate investors, real estate agents, entrepreneurs, hard money lenders, financial analysts, um, and anybody with just in interesting and inspiring stories. And selfishly, we want to learn from those individuals so we can help our own personal finance journey and help better navigate our situations. Um, and we just find that those conversations every single time are so valuable that we feel others can learn as well. You know, and if we help one person, take a financial step forward with this podcast and these efforts and these conversations that we have, it's totally worthwhile to us. So I think that's really our, our North and our compass is, you know, collaboration, transparent communication, um, candid conversations to where it's going to be a little bit vulnerable. We're going to be throwing numbers out there and, you know, we're not financial experts by any means, but we are two individuals who just have a burning desire to be better than we were the day before realistically in every aspect of our lives. But, you know, you can't, in my opinion, you can't really live the life that you want to the extent that you want if you don't have the knowledge to use money as the tool that it is to create the life that you want. So with that being said, I think we're going to dive into our first topic. Our first topic is pretty foundational. You know, I think that's how we're going to start these first couple episodes is like really just boil down to, you know, what are some early money decisions where you realized you know, the impact that money had on you or your family or whatever the case may be. What are some early financial decisions for you, Derek, that you felt at any point in your life could be as early as you can remember, could be high school, could be college. Uh, but what are some of those early decisions that kind of shaped you and your perspective regarding money? Yeah, I would say the earliest I can remember would be like probably middle school into high school that those years where my parents were separated and I spent weekends at my dad's and my dad would drop me off on Monday morning before school, like 4.30 in the morning. I'd say 85% of those week, those Monday mornings, as I'm getting out the car to go inside, he would hand me a $20 bill. And that $20 bill was essentially like my lifeline for the week, like lunch at school or after school going to the YMCA, am I getting Taco Bell? Am I getting a vending machine dinner or snack before I go home and eat? During the week, am I getting 
the 40 cent reduced lunch that's like a sloppy joe or am i buying pizza with ranch sauce and a chocolate milk am i getting the three baked cookies in the ths cafeteria at 7 a.m before class <laughs> that's you know what so I'm wild or who let or, that fly or am i going am i going to class hungry and gotta you know wait until lunch comes around so that was one of those things where that taught me budgeting from an early age. So you talk about early financial decisions or um, impactful financial decisions. Budgeting, those are small decisions, but they have a huge impact on your quality of life throughout, for me at that time, the week as far as am I eating every day or is it Tuesday and I already spent that $20 and now I'm trying to bum a twenty off Dave Kant's at the table because I see him sitting there, his lunch is nicely eaten, and he's got six quarters next to him just sitting on the lunch table. So I'm, I'm like, hey, uh, Dave, uh, can you use those uh, quarters, buddy? And he, you know, oh, no, Derek, you can have it. So, But then again, you know, I felt like a jackass, but at the same time, like, I'm starving. You know how it is when you're in high school. You got ba- I got basketball practice after school, so I'm not going to eat till 6 o'clock. So those are, those are things where, like, on the weeks that I wasn't, more responsible, fiscally responsible with that $20 was the weeks where I'm like, I'm standing on the corner with a sign, like we'll take a dollar for pizza type shit. You know what I mean? I think that brings up an interesting point, Derek. Um, And you're going to, it's going to be a reoccurring theme. I feel like throughout this podcast um, is that it's decisions you make, you know, Derek walks in and he wants to get the bag of cookies in the morning, pizza for lunch, Taco Bell for dinner before he gets home. You know, that's a, 10, 11, $12 day. Now all of a sudden he's just spent half his money for the week on one yeah, day. And keep in mind, $20, that was 15, 16 years ago. $20 went a lot further than $20 with today. $20, you wouldn't get past Monday these days with the prices and stuff like that. But back then it was relatively. But it's well, the decisions, you know, it's the decisions oh, that sure. it boils for down sure. to. And that's what I think, that's what I realized. You know, I realized, again, I mentioned my grandmother and having a large impact on me financially. Um, I remember one specific instance, I think I got two that really stick out to me in my early childhood, where I realized it's a decision to make money and to use money. Um, I remember I was, must have been between like the ages of seven and nine, and I found a slit in my grandma's tire, just by chance. I wasn't even looking. I just, I was tire level height because I was two foot two. Um, And I told her, and she gave me a $5 bill. And to me, I was like, wow, I just put in 15 seconds and I got a $5 bill in return. I'm going to try to replicate that. So like the next two, three weeks, I was circling that car like a hawk trying to find imperfections in her tires. So maybe she could, you know, she'll pay me again. And, and I never found one. But right. I think right then and there, I realized like, okay, I, I can trade time for money. And essentially that was like, you know, that's a seven-year-old's version of a job. You're trading time for money as a professional right now to this day. Um, So that was one circumstance where I think that was like a revelation, an early revelation to me. And then another circumstance, it's probably a little bit older, maybe from like the 10 to 13 age. Um, And I remember I would just spend the entire year collecting coins and rolling them in. I don't remember if anybody used to do this. I'm probably dating myself. But you would roll them in like the coin rollers. This was before Coinstar and everything. Right. And then you would bring them to the bank and they would just cash you out. Whatever you brought in coins, they gave you in bills. Mm. So I remember, you know, it would legitimately be like a year or two years worth of coins. I would bring to, you know, put them in the big pickle jar. I'd bring it to Bank of America. They'd cash me out. I would feel like a baller. You know, I got 150 bucks and I'm 10, 11 years old, 12 years old, whatever it is. And I remember I would only spend that money on a big purchase. I remember my first big purchase was an MP3 player. I wanted one so bad. And when I bought it, it just, it was like a dagger through my soul. You know, I spent so long saving these coins and in a 10 second transaction, it was all gone. And all I had to show for it was this MP3 player. And obviously at the time I was fired up, but I think to me that showed me that that's a decision. You know, I could save and continue to put that money towards a big purchase or use it for whatever I might use it for at that time in my life or I could spend it and I may or may not get what I feel is my value for the time and the effort and the energy that I put into getting that money. And I think that's like a really elementary um, way to look at it. But again, I think that was like a really early point in my life where I realized the impact of how hard it is to accumulate the money and how fast it can 
leave your pocket essentially. Um, you know, and I think as I kind of transition through life, you know, you, you, you run into financial decisions or financial moments where the decision may or may not tip the scales in one way. So, you know, I think like a car, you know, you're going into high school or, you know, into your early college years, I think your auto decision is huge, especially when you're at the age where you can take on debt. Um, speaking of debt, I know Derek has already mentioned this, but Derek and myself both had a fairly significant size of student loan bill when we were done with our education. Um, and, you know, I, that's not something that I was necessarily even thinking about. I wasn't thinking about, okay, I'm going into the field of kinesiology or exercise science. What are the jobs that are available? How many jobs are available? What are those jobs going to pay me? Um, so I don't think I was navigating my life with a financial mindset or direction, uh, which many 18-year-olds aren't. But those situations on. or those decisions, rather, set you up for years to come, whether that be in hardship or whether that be in, you know, like gl a glorious life. It, it kind of depends the individual and the circumstance. But um, I think more the more people that can from an early age start to wrap their mind around, OK, each decision, it may not make a huge difference in the immediate right now. But if I do or do not act upon this way, it's going to impact me in the future. And how is that going to impact me in the future? I think that's where I began to really, you know, once I got out of school, I was like, wow, I got this mountain of student loan debt. Realistically, I was, I think I got out of University of Miami with like 50, 55K of student loans. And then all of a sudden, what's my salary? 50 to 55K before I picked up any like side hustles. Yeah. So that's just like a big mountain to be staring up, you know? And I, and I, I was at that mountain staring up at it and I never even thought about it previous to being in that position. And I think that's something that, you know, going back, I probably would have, I don't want to say navigated it differently because I think I took the path that I was meant to take. And I think I ended up where I'm meant to end up, but um, just having the knowledge and the um, just the awareness in those situations of how much weight is actually made in those, what seems mundane decisions. Um, you know, I think that it, it can't go unspoken with how significant those decisions are, you know, and then obviously as you age, you know, situations like renting versus buying, those are huge money decisions, which I think we're going to probably dedicate at least one episode to that specific topic right there. For sure. Um, but, you know, like wedding costs, partners, are you living together? Are you splitting finances? Are you supporting one yeah. person or are you kind of splitting the bill equally? Um, those are all big money decisions that, again, in the day to day might not seem like a lot, but over the long run, can drastically shape your your financial situation right and i think you you hit a great point at one point you talked about and i think this is something that is almost not pop culture these days because everything you see on <clears throat> instagram social media facebook wherever twitter it's all like instant gratification what can you do for me now what can i get in this moment you see it in relationships, you see it in car decisions, you see it in dang near everything. And you talked about instant gratification versus long-term success and stability in the decisions that you make today. And I can't, I don't feel like we can stress that enough, how important you have to, how important it is to have that ability to sit back and almost have that vision to understand in the moment how this decision could impact you six, seven years down the line. And like you said, at 18, 19, 20, 22, 24 years old, I don't think I fully grasped that. And I sit here as a 32-year-old man and think to myself, like you said, I don't wish I could go back and change things because I'm here now, um, right where I'm supposed to be at this moment in time. And I learned a lot through my mistakes. But if I could speak to 18, 20-year-old Derek, it would be, you know, weigh your decisions wisely. Instant gratification is instant gratification and nothing beyond that. Set yourself up for 30, 32, 34 to be in a much better, more comfortable situation because I think sometimes at 18, you don't picture yourself enjoying life at 35. You're just thinking about how you enjoyed at 21, 22, right? But now that I'm 32, I enjoy life in many of the similar ways as I did at 23. And if I had a little bit more money, made some better decisions back then, maybe I can enjoy more of that life today. But that's neither here nor there in my situation. I just hope that, again, circling back to the point of this podcast, we can help others, younger guys than us or younger females than us, realize that sooner to set them up, set themselves up for 
a better future than maybe we have in our current present, if that makes sense. I think it's important too, to know that your situation can change in a heartbeat. You know, like I remember before I got laid off, I poured everything into this job. I poured everything into the university and everybody that I worked with knew that and they felt that and um, they reciprocated that energy truthfully, except for the president that came in, new president, didn't know me, didn't know the university. We were a union school. So I was the last full-time hire. I'm the first one to be let go. You know, see you later. again, yeah, see you later. Sayonara. <laughs> the decisions that I made drastically impacted me in that moment of change because at that time, my student loans don't care that I got laid off. That car note one that bit. I took because I thought I needed a four-wheel drive Jeep 2016 brand new to drive in Vermont. They don't care that I just got laid off. Those bills keep on coming. You know, and I think that you don't think that your situation can change like that, but I promise you, especially if you are reliant on an employer, it most definitely can change. Um, so I think the more safety nets that you put around your life and the more you arm yourself with knowledge to um, be able to pivot and adapt to those situations, I think the better off you're going to be. For sure. Uh, but, but Derek, before we you know spend too much time getting in on this, because I know Derek and I can get into quite a few tangents. Um, We're going to keep it moving because we got a really interesting topic. I feel like it's one of my favorite topics to talk about real estate. Um, But specifically, we're talking about the first time home buyer experience because my guy, Derek Brockamer, is going through that right now. And it's super exciting. You know, I love having these conversations with him. Uh, But I think the way that he is looking at his first time home buying experience, truthfully, is drastically different than how I approached my um, first time home buying experience. And I think both perspectives are very valuable. Um, So without kind of diving into my perspective first, I want Derek to, Derek, walk us through your first time home buying experience. What are some things that you're learning along the way and and how can our, how can our listeners learn from that experience? Right. So my, my first time experience is one that I'm doing it with a partner, right? I'm married. I've been married for about three months. My wife and I have been looking for a home for probably a year and a half, two years now. I think we've placed maybe four or five offers, maybe six, um, and each time thus far have gotten outbid. And that's a really frustrating thing, especially when you don't know much about why certain loans are accepted first or taken in, uh, over like a, so a conventional loan would be um, utilized first if uh, versus somebody who comes in with like an FHA offer or a VA loan or some sort of government loan type thing. But anyway, so recently we put in an offer on a home in Meriden, Connecticut, and our offer got accepted. So that was like this like crazy moment because we've been so used to hearing no, or there was a house in Southington that we offered and it's like six o'clock on Friday and our realtor's like, oh, we're number one, we're number one, we're number one. I think you guys are going to get it. So we're getting all fired up. And at like, you know, 1159, right before the the clock strikes 12, somebody swoops in with a cash offer for like, that was less than our offer. But because it was cash, they could liquidate that money faster, or whatever the transaction is quicker. So the people went with their offer because it was a cash offer. And now I'm sitting there like, damn, who the hell has $280,000 cash just to wire to somebody's account for a freaking home? Again, I probably a hard money loan, which I'm sure we'll get to. But um, I didn't understand all this stuff, so I've been learning as I go. But now that we've got our offer accepted, you know my my plan right now or my thought process on the home is I believe that this is a home that we can live in for three, five, maybe seven years. I hope no longer than that. That's the plan. But I think it's also something that if we are smart with this process and keep our mortgage payment lower or refinance in the future to continue to drop it to keep more money in our pockets on a month-to-month basis – There may be a time period where we can save up enough money, have something for a down payment on a new home, and maybe rent this one out in the future as a form of like passive income as far as the real estate perspective with dream is with the home. But as far as that first-time home buying experience or process, I I just did my inspection with the inspector yesterday. First time I've ever done that. Luckily, you know, this guy who's pretty experienced, seven years, luckily he um, basically said this is one of the cleanest inspections he's ever had which was really cool. Um, so that's something that was, uh, I think being there, if you're a first time home buyer, it was interesting to be there, to watch how he goes meticulously through your home, every single nook and cranny of the house he's inspecting. So the lights, 
the garbage disposal, whether you're like electricity, the tripper, if it gets wet, I forget what they called an IRFC. You know what that's called? I don't remember off the top of my head, yeah, but, but I think that's like a that, great tip. Yeah, it's so, like be present for the inspection. You absolutely. will never get a better glimpse into what is going on inside your home. That's a huge tip for the first time home buyer. Right. So he's looking at, he's up in the attic, like you got great insulation, but you still need insulation here. Otherwise it could, uh, you know, uh, heat can rise through this and you'll actually lose energy, which could raise your heat bill. Maybe not significantly, but 15 bucks on a month to month basis adds up. Uh, he talked about like the roof and gave me a timeline on it. What his thoughts were like, there was a small leak in the basement. He's like, Oh, I think because of this pipe, if you just did this, you know, he's not giving, I guess he's not allowed to give me like active advice, but he's kind of just speaking out loud. And he's kind of like, this is probably an easy fix. He's an easy fix. We're looking at the foundation. I don't know what the hell to look for in a foundation. It's got like vertical cracks. He's like, oh, vertical cracks aren't that bad. These look like they're repaired. It's when you have horizontal cracks that are much more concerning. He's looking at the boiler. He's looking at uh, our uh, the oil Roofing tank. for sure too. Yeah he, yeah, he looked at the roof. Um, he's looking at the backyard and like the grade and slope and how water is going to come off and possibly affect certain areas of the yard where we may have uh, excess water and how that could affect it because our house is kind of at the bottom of the hill. So if that starts to seep into the basement and the, the garage, do I need a sump pump or a sub pump, whatever they call it? Um, so all those little tidbits were like just like little nuggets of information. I never looked at a house like that. You know, I never went to my buddy's house and was like checking his light fixtures and like, making sure his toilet flush. You know, I think those are things that you, I don't know if you take for granted or you just don't think about until you're in that situation. But like, I, I can't stress enough. If you're a first time home buyer, you need to go and experience that. It may not go as smoothly as mine. He said that he's like, I, I'm going to have a ton of uh, inspections this week that are way longer and more detailed than this one. Um, but they find everything. Like this guy found the literally smallest leak on the boiler. I wouldn't have saw it. He's looking, he's like, oh, you got a little leak in the boiler. The thing's three years old. He's like, it's probably under warranty. Boom, boom, boom. You just do this, that. They'll come out and fix it, probably free of charge. Like that just alleviates like stress because you're going into a situation of somebody else's home that's becoming yours. And the last thing you want is to be settled in for a month and all of a sudden you're springing all these leaks and things are breaking. And now you're, you know, you got $1,500, $2,000 bills on top of your, to fix things on top of your mortgage and stuff. So um, yeah, that's Derek, kind of I want to I want to chime in real quick because I think yeah. another great tip for the home buyer that you kind of just glanced over, yeah, is y'all said or you said that y'all put in what six, seven, eight offers. Honestly, probably more than that in in our time having these conversations. Yeah, um, I mean we've put in quite a few. Yeah, yeah, but regardless, that number does regardless, not matter. You know, no, I it think I think as first time home buyers, especially you know, you, and in this housing market, being as crazy as it is. You really got to be patient with with the offers, you know, and know that all you can control is putting in that offer and putting in a competitive offer or not putting in a competitive offer. Say you're only comfortable offering a certain price and you can't go above that based on your budget. Realtors are legally obligated to show every single offer to the seller. So what are you going to do? Hurt this person's feelings? They're just going to push the paper away and move on, you know? So I think you got to be really patient because you know, if you go one for seven, one for 10, even all it takes is that one, you know, and, and Derek and I, we love golf. So I think it's really easy to conceptualize. Like if you're on the professional golf tour, PGA live, whatever your preference is, um, and you win one out of every 10 tournaments, you're getting paid, you know, you're getting paid, you're going into hall of fame, arguably. So that's all it takes in real estate, you know, to throw shots, you might go one for 20 and it's that one that could potentially set you up and be life-changing. Um, but I'm going to dive into mine a little bit more because Derek and his wife, unless you got something else to add, Derek, I was going to add one more quick yeah, go thing. For it. Very important in your first time too to have a good relationship with your agent and really be open and honest with them as far as uh, contractual stipulations. So once an offer is accepted, if you know, you need to have things in the contract that say, okay, if this inspection goes this way, and we don't like it, we can back out through the appraisal process. If it doesn't appraise at a certain level and the seller is not willing to drop the price, you can back out. That way you're not locked into a situation that could potentially be damaging to your financial picture that maybe you weren't aware of. So contractual stipulations are very important in the negotiation process. Just be aware of those. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, it also gives you a, a way out if you have those stipulations, that, if you need that. That's the most important thing. You just always kind of need, just in yeah, case, you need, an out. you need to slide your foot out that back door and escape if need be. Now, my home buyer experience, first time home buyer experience differs from Derek and his wife's pretty drastically, I would say. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, I dove into personal finance after I had that situation with my first job. Um, and, you know, I didn't necessarily land on real estate right away, but I pretty, pretty closely after the time of turmoil in my life, leaned into real estate and said, okay, this is the path that I'm going to take. It's easier than starting a business. I would argue that it is starting a business, but it's easier than creating, um, you know, a service for people. So I would say, you know, maybe a year or two, I was just really, I knew right off the bat, my next job was going to be in the Washington DC area. Um, so I basically started studying the market, you know, and I started, um, looking at market trends and formulating my buy box. Uh, I think that's something that you're going to hear us say a lot on this podcast. Uh, I think that's a big first time homeowner tip is identify what your buy box is. And then, you know, when, a whatever, two or three of those come on the market within a week or two span, these homes fit your buy box or these homes do not fit your buy box. If they don't, you keep it moving. If they do, then you throw your offers out there at them. And, you know, again, it might take 10 buy box homes to get your offer accepted, but you know exactly what your criteria is and what you're looking for going into an area or whatever your situation may be. Right. So if you I don't was mind just, me asking. Yes. Sorry, let me interrupt you. Exactly what is a buy box? Because I, I, I'm listening to you. I can probably put the pieces to, to the puzzle together, but if I'm a viewer, I may be wondering what exactly do you mean by buy box? That's a good question, Derek. I would say buy box is um, your ideal purchase for your home. So um, for me, in my situation, I'll just give you what my buy box was for this specific property. Um, I wanted to be as close to Washington, D.C. as possible because I knew closer I am to D.C., the more I can get for rent. I knew the more jobs that were available. Um, and I know that that's just a, an, an economy that's always going to be moving and booming. Um, so that was item number one on my buy box. Item number two, I wanted two beds because then you could accommodate, you know, if you're only in a one bed place, you're probably going to just get a single individual or maybe a couple. Um, but if you're in a two bedroom place, especially if it's got two baths, I didn't necessarily have two baths in my buy box, but I had two bedrooms in my buy box um, that can open up doors to families now that can rent out your space. Um, so that was honestly, that was it. And then your price point. I would say is also in your buy box. Right. So I knew that I was around, you know, again, this is 2019, 2020, maybe. Um, I knew that I was around, you know, 200, 250K was my buy box um, price tag. So all those things combined, if one of those criteria were not met, I didn't entertain the property. If all of those criteria were met, I was on the horn with my realtor, yo, let's go check this out. You know, we only got X amount of days until this thing's off the market. Um, I got pretty fortunate with my realtor. As Derek said, it's a crucial relationship that you have throughout this process. Um, but I had a husband and wife couple um, who were my realtors. And that was essentially the way I saw it. That was two professionals for the price of one. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I told them that what my goal was, which my goal at the time was, I mean, I, I'm in a field where, you know, you get one phone call and it changes your life. It changes your location and you get up and go. Mm -hmm. um, so I told them, you know, I'm going to live here for the time being. Um, and I'm going to rent it out when I'm out of here, you know, and I can be out of here in the next three months or I can be out of here in three years. I'm not really sure. Um, and they were so helpful in the process. I can't stress enough, find a good realtor. Um, one more thing in my buy box though, Derek, that I just thought about, this is also, I think a great tip for our first time home buyer is find a property that you could add value to. Um, and that can come in so many different forms or fashions that can, that can come in like, um, an unfinished basement that you could finish that could come in at a couple of carpets that you pull up and you throw down some nice hardwood floors that could come in at a kitchen, which in my specific situation, I redid the floors, the trim paint. I redid bathroom tile. I redid the entire kitchen. I put backsplash up new appliances. So I would, ju I just went in here knowing like I'm putting in value to this space. In some um, spots, some spots offer, also offer, I've seen situations where it's like one bath but they have hookup for an additional toilet. So you can get it to one and a half baths. That's a place you can add a lot of value. Right. 
knock down a wall or add a wall to add or subtract a bedroom or make a right. bigger bedroom. Um, so I think that's a great tip is look for ways that you could add value to a property. Um, this specific situation, I looked at the kitchen the first time I was in this property. It was like a sea teal, sea coral teal oh. countertop, man. And I was like, what on earth is this? Who even thought of this? Who like, wants what? to live here? Yeah. Who, who would be cooking salmon on this countertop? Could it be me? They don't so take I life knew, serious. I knew, yeah, you can't take life serious <laughs> if you got sea foam green countertops. So I knew right off the bat, I was like, before I get a tenant in here, I'm putting, uh, I think it was quartz. Granted, it's more expensive. So I was, I was like, I'm throwing quartz on here. It's going to be beautiful. Mm. And it was a big counter. So like, I'm talking probably total 15, 20 foot countertop that was changed out two sides of it. You know, you had the sink in the cooking space over here, and then you had the oven space over here. Right. So it was a significant cost to do that. But instantly when you walk in that place now, you know, it's got the new paint, it's got the new floors, it's got the trim, and now it's got the new kitchen. And to me, that's a little bit of romance. Um, and I knew specifically that this location was the one. If I haven't made this clear, uh, I was looking at the first time home buying experience, knowing I am 110% renting this out. I'm going to live here as long as I need to, but I am renting it out. It's um, an investment actually, for you. Yeah, it was a full-on investment. investment right? It was a full-on investment. I did not care what the living situation was going to be like when I was there. I was going to make it to where I would want to live there by the time I left so that somebody would want to rent there. Um, and I, the location was prime. It's attached. The complex is a condo complex. It's attached to a state park. It's got the tennis court, the pool. On the other side of it, it's attached to a big shopping plaza with a Starbucks, Gold's Gym, uh, DQ Julius, like all these name brands to where – it's got walkability now and a balcony that overlooks this tennis court. And to me, I'm like, okay, that's romance. You know, there's gotta be like a, a wow factor in your property. And I thought that this property specifically, especially after I could upgrade it, had multiple pieces of romance to it, to w w would attract people to want to live there and can picture themselves living there when they're touring your space. Right. Um, so I think that that is huge. Again, buy box and find value add opportunities. Uh, I was in a unique situation. I closed. And there was um, a tenant already in there from the previous owner that their lease wasn't up. So essentially, I was a landlord right on close for a few months. And I think that just like, man, that got my juices flowing. I couldn't even tell you the high that I was feeling. you know. And I think the, the transaction was fuzzy. I want to say that the seller wired me the rest of their rent, which was basically just enough to cover my mortgage payment. I didn't have, or I in the security deposit, but I didn't have any vetting on these people I didn't have any knowledge of who they were. So truthfully, it was a little nerve wracking, but I was like, this is it. I'm in the game. This is what I've been wanting to do the past two years. You know, and it's like, oh, you could say, oh, he got lucky. But like, to me, I premeditated this entire move. You know, like I plotted and schemed for two years to close you know a property say. like that. You know what they say? What do they luck, say, Derek? Luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Isn't that what they say? Absolutely. I make my own luck. I and make my own luck. And, and I was ready for that moment when it came. Right. And another interesting thing, I think you got a, a quick taste of free living to a, to a degree, right? You had a space that you're like, occupied, oh, yeah. but somebody yeah, else is You're right. Paying. That was part of, that's a great right. point, Derek. I totally forgot about that. Um, so it, it was a little bit around the COVID time. Um, our university shut down, totally shut down. So I was at this point, um, I was renting in a large like industrial apartment complex and they allowed our leases to be terminated with no financial repercussion. So I was like, screw this place. I've had enough. You know, I'm paying like in 2019, I'm paying 1600 to live by myself in a one bed. And it was just like crippling, absolutely crippling on top of like the student loans, the car note, my life expenses. I just couldn't do it. So I got out of there first chance I got. I got to live at home with my parents in Torrington, Connecticut for probably... Uh, that was probably like five or six months there. I received full pay from my university with zero work. I received full pay from my side hustles as if I was normally working and I received stimmy checks. So all of a sudden I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm loaded. There's gunpowder here and I'm ready to go in. Um, and I kind of facilitated it to where I knew I was going to buy, but I didn't know how long. So I talked to one of my coworkers. I was like, can I crash on your floor until I close a home? And, you know, bless his heart. He's like, absolutely. You know, you could do it for free. And I was like, I'm not about to do it for free. I'll pay you a little bit. You know, I threw him like 200 bucks a month, but I was slumming it on this dude's 
living room carpet, you know, on an air mattress. I'm living out of a suitcase. And that's what it took, you know, because I was willing to live uncomfortable and sacrifice in the here and now for my vision that for I wanted to game. bring to life. Yeah. And, and it wasn't sexy doing that. You know no, what I mean? Not I remember I met my girlfriend during that time and I was like, man, I cannot bring this chick home. No. I have to like take her on dates everywhere, you know, and I ha like if we're if we want to have like a, a nice night or I just can't ever bring her home. And that was right. like eating at me to, at, mm. to some point, you know, so I mean, it certainly was a sacrifice. But at the end of the day, I'm just going to give you some rough numbers because uh, I want you to realize that the barrier of entry is not always as high as you think it is. Granted, this is at a much different time in the housing market. But this entire purchase, um, it was listed for 224. I offered them 230 because I said, what the heck? I, I want this property. I'm willing to overpay for this property. Bank appraised it for 230. So check that box off. Interest rate, 2.5%. You know, that's a steal. I'm still holding that. I'm probably going to hold that, honestly, forever. Got to hold that forever. Um, all in, in expenses, including HOA, was 1500 First rent check, 2100 so I'm cash flowing 600 from the rip on this property. And I'm like, oh man, I got it figured out. You know, you can't tell me nothing at this point, which is a totally wrong approach. Um, you know, I definitely ran into some hiccups on the way, but it was just so rewarding to me to see it all come to fruition in that manner, you know? And um, at that time I lived in it for about probably five months before I got my current job offer at NYU. And Basically, right on the job offer, I started listing the house on Zillow on Facebook Marketplace. It's located maybe 15 minutes from Quantico, which is a, the biggest marine base in the country. I could be wrong with that stat, um, but it's a huge don't marine quote base. Us. Yeah, don't quote me. It's a huge marine base, though. So I was yeah. lucky enough to, honestly, I've had three tenants at this point. Every single one of them have been Marines from that place, which I don't know how familiar you all are with the service, but if they do not pay rent or they um, get foreclosed upon, they lose their, um, active military duty. So it's like double security in that regard. Right. Um, so yeah, I would say where I leave off the rent was 2,100 that I was able to charge them. Um, it's mm -hmm. up on that. It's more than that now because, you know, rents have increased. I've included pet fees. You know, I got somebody in there with a pet now, so I hit them with a pet fee every month. Mm -hmm. Um, and the total cash to close that, I think it was, 12k plus closing costs which brought the total to close that to 19k you know and at this point i was working full-time i think it was four years at that point so to me that's a, a fairly low barrier of entry you know especially when i was able to save up essentially a full calendar year of no living expenses and i get to pocket my entire paycheck um so that was just that was the turning point where i was like okay I can, I love what I do and I'm going to continue to do it at a high level and we we'll continue to grow professionally, but I'm putting everything I have into real estate and I'm, I'm finding a way to where I could parallel the tracks and ideally someday, hopefully make more off my properties than I could ever make from my W2, you know, and if that day comes great, if that day doesn't come, I love my W2. So I feel no need to like, there's no pressure to leave. There's no urgency in my life to leave. I just am riding my passion out getting a healthy paycheck at this point in my life. God bless for that. But now all of a sudden I've turned into, I mean, I'm renting out, I own four homes now and I'm renting out three of them. I guess I'm renting out two of them. One of them is a commercial property. So I'm right. renting out three units right now. And all in all, that's bringing me over, it's probably close to 2,200 a month of cash flow after all expenses paid. Um, and that just didn't happen in one decision. That happened in thousands and thousands of decisions over the span of, what is essentially probably a six year window, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I, I guess that's where we'll probably leave it off at this at, for episode one, you know, it's like for the first time home buyers, be patient, you know, be really patient, be find patient. your value add opportunities, create your buy box. Another thing I'll say is get all your paperwork in order. You know, these loans and these lenders really hound you. They want to know every penny you've ever made. They want to know your mother's maiden name. They want to know how much you were, weighed at birth. They want to know everything about you. So get all your paperwork in order because it's a headache if you don't and you're scrambling last minute trying to close this home in, in 30 days and you can't figure out where your paperwork is at. So that's another one. Definitely get your paperwork in order. Um, but again, just be patient. It only takes one to build that momentum. And then, you know, you get one more and all of a sudden that's a snowball rolling downhill and it's only getting bigger. Yeah. But Derek, 
I think that's episode one in the books, man. I, yeah. I'm, Good episode. I'm really fired up for where this podcast is going. Again, I think the direction that we want to take it in is just full, transparent, honest conversation regarding personal finance. You know, and it's not always going to be between Derek and I. We're going to interview a lot of people who are truthfully in better situations than we're at, you know, because we want to learn uh, for everybody. I think it's it's fundamentally who I am that you can learn from every single individual that comes across your path. And the more perspectives and experiences we can hear, I feel the more I can utilize those experiences to help navigate my own life um, and my own personal finance. And that's really the goal of this podcast is we want to share those conversations with y'all. And we hope that you guys uh, enjoy listening. We hope you get value out of it. And we hope y'all have some actionable steps with each episode that you can incorporate into your day-to-day lives and, you know, reach financial goals that you weren't previously even setting your sights on. So um, we're really pumped that y'all are here joining us. You know, Derek and I are by no means financial experts. We're by no means podcast experts, but we are truthfully, we're diving in and we are going to get better and better and continue to grow as we go through this journey. This is episode one. We hope y'all are with us on episode 100 because, you know, we're getting there, you know, and, and Derek and I are two people that we just set our sights on a goal. That goal doesn't necessarily even need to be in sight. And that goal in a year or two still might not be in sight. And we're still pursuing that goal. That's kind of how I work. That's how I operate. Um, so when I want something, I go get it. I know Derek's that type of dude. And we want this podcast. So we appreciate y'all tuning in. You know, we're going to release wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, iHeartRadio. We're going to be releasing every Monday. That's the plan. Weekly, we're going to be pretty strict with that. Uh, we really want to be routine. So we're putting out consistent quality content for our listeners. Um, but until then, this is the Cash Course Podcast. We appreciate y'all tuning in. Peace. See you next week. Next Monday. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investing in any asset, including real estate, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing and only risk capital you can afford to lose. The Cash Course podcast disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages rising from the reliance upon information presented in this podcast.